Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass is joined by Dr. Stuart M. Butler, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution, and Patrick Ishmael, Director of Government Accountability at the Show Me Institute. They discuss the recent vote in Missouri to expand the state's Medicaid program, the future of the American healthcare system, and the idea of Medicare Advantage for All. For more Show Me Institute podcasts, visit SoundCloud at SoundCloud slash Show Me Institute and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass. I'm so happy to get to talk to you today, Dr. Stuart Butler. You're with Brookings now, is that right? That's correct. That's great. But I certainly have known you from your days at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, you recently had a piece in Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, and you were talking about this idea, it was about healthcare, and um, you talked about this idea of, of whether the pandemic presents a moment to like change out the chassis of healthcare, which I thought was super interesting because I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of education policy. And do you really believe that we're at a moment in time where we're going to see institutional level change in major sectors of our society, like healthcare and education? Or do you think it's a, it's a short term? Well, I think it's more a question of saying that, uh, that there's a widespread feeling in the country, I believe, that there's got to be some fundamental changes in lots of areas of our, of our uh, public policy. And so it's not necessarily that something will happen very dramatically quickly, but that I think there's just a growing feeling that we've got. We've got to resolve some pretty basic issues in this country. Healthcare is one of them, education, of course, uh, race relations is another, and so on. There, there can be lots of arguments about what to do right now. But I think the feeling is we've got to kind of deal with that. And that's really what I was trying to get at when I use the term chassis, because I mean, by that I mean, you know, without getting into a lot of detail about exactly what should happen right now, let's try to see if we can reach some kind of agreement on what a a broad structure should look like uh, in that area. If we could start to do that and, and have some ideas about what it would look like, then we can argue about the details, but we're sort of arguing within some boundaries of of agreement. And I think that's what's really necessary now. I've seen a couple of references to something called Amara's Law. Have you heard of this? No, I'm not aware of that. Basically, uh-huh. this guy Roy Amara said that we tend to overestimate the impact of a new technology in the short run, but underestimate it in the mm-hmm. long run. And I'm thinking in terms of things like parents forming their own schools, you know, getting together with neighbors and forming their own schools and teachers leaving the profession to teach at these schools. And it seems like we've got this major shift. But I also think that we have potentially will kind of go back to the system as it was because it's worked as it has for quite a while, but then have this kind of smaller, long-term, very fundamental change in the way parents are involved in their kids' education. And I could see a similar thing in healthcare as well, right? So it's like all of a sudden telemedicine is, I've I've done telemedicine in the last six months and something that I'd never done before. It seems like, wow, we're going to change how we see the doctor. But Maybe we won't, but there'll be kind of a longer-term, smaller shift. I think that's a good way of thinking about uh, a lot of changes, and telemedicine is a good example of that. We've been forced into it. There have been lots of articles, how dramatic this is going to be and how it's going to change everything and so forth. And that's one of the reasons there's been resistance to it among particularly uh, providers, professionals in that field, because they were worried about sort of um, being the whole profession being undermined and so on. But I think if we think about it, um, and we think about the challenge that many people have of getting access to healthcare, uh, literally having the time to do it. I mean, people are on hourly, you know, hourly paid, and they're in parts of the 
of the country, which is difficult to, to get good care and they have to travel and so forth. There are huge barriers as a result of that today. So, so telemedicine in, that, in those cases, I think, can really make a significant difference to, to those individuals. I think that's the way to, to think about it. And on that, that, the question of this being a very, you know, uh, complex time for healthcare. I think one of the things that we've seen during the coronavirus pandemic response is, like you say, um, uh, more adoption of telemedicine, uh, an inclination for licensure reform, uh, right. scope of practice expansions. And I think from the right, a lot of times we talk about supply expansions to decrease costs and increase access. But one thing that's happening simultaneous, of course, is the Medicaid expansion debate. Uh, Oklahoma voted on this uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Missouri just voted on it. And uh, both states will be expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And I want to, first of all, get your reaction to that. What, what you think of those votes and what that says about where we are uh, in terms our, of our debate on, uh, on health care in this country? Well, I'd say, first of all, I'm not hugely surprised at, at these votes. Um, historically, if you actually look at the um, development of Medicaid, you know, back starting in 1965, uh, by no means all the states came in to Medicaid at that point. And gradually over time, kind of for want of a effective alternative, you know, state after state gradually joined. And I think that is what we're seeing now. And, and so, and I think the bottom line, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that for want of an alternative, that when you have a situation where um, it seems that whatever we do, we can't seem to cover effectively a very key part of the population, then if there's no alternative that is really workable, people will go to the only one that's on the table. And I've written about this actually for many years when I was at Heritage and more recently at, at, uh, at Brookings. It seems to me that those of us on the center right uh, have not done a great job in really uh, laying out in detail and in, in, a, in an attractive way, if you like, an alternative to some of the programs that we quite appropriately criticize. And I think this is a, this is a case. I, you know, I've written a lot about... Um, people in this sort of expansion population, if you like, and argued for a lot of, of, uh, of proposals in that area. Um, so I, I'm very keen to look at ways in which we can cover people. And I think you can do it through a combination of, of looking at the subsidy system so that people can get into the market in some way, and then having a, a reasonably structured market that people can understand and that there are certain kind of basics to it and so on. I think a completely open market is just so confusing to, to, to people, to, to the kind of population we're, look, we're talking about especially, that they tend to gravitate, therefore, to Medicaid, something they're familiar with, or to Medicare, something which, which they, they feel they know. So I, I do think that even though I've got a lot of concerns about the growth of Medicaid, as it as in a traditional Medicaid, I think that we really have not done a great job of, of kind of showing a clear alternative. I think we can do that, but I, but I don't think we've done it well enough up to now.
Well, and, and one of the dominant arguments in favor of, of expanding Medicaid has been that doing so helps to close the demographic gap in coverage. Um, you know, generally, between government-provided coverage for the poor, aged, and other vulnerable populations and the coverage secured privately by everyone else. You know, the ACA certainly drew on both approaches, not only expanding the Medicaid population, but also imposing an individual mandate on healthy individuals who otherwise may not have purchased ACA coverage. Now, I think the phrase individual mandate is batted around a lot these days without a great deal of specificity, but the left often uses its, its historical connection to heritage as sort of a shield. So what was the primary purpose of the individual mandate as you and your colleagues envisioned it, and how would you distinguish it from what was actually enacted by uh, the ACA? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, this is an issue that always keeps coming up. Um, and, and I think there's a, first of all, one's got to remember that uh, our state of knowledge of what works or is likely to work is improving over time and has improved over time. We've learned uh, one of the reasons that I'm a big advocate of waivers of allowing states to try things is because I recognize that healthcare is something where none of us know all the answers. And also, we're not necessarily sure how a favorite answer is actually going to work in practice. So, therefore, better to work with a state that is on board with a particular approach and so on. So, I think we learn as we go along. If you go back, if you turn the clock back, you know, 10 or 15 years, um, you know, to be honest, uh, I, I think the feeling, the, pretty much the prevailing feeling at that time was that unless you had everybody in, in a health system, in, in, a, in a mechanism, then, you know, uh, young, healthy people would just opt out. You'd end up, you know, with a spiraling, sort of a death spiral, as we call it, of high cost people and so on. Um, and I certainly felt that was the case, and I was not alone by any means uh, on the right. So that's the first point I'll make about the idea of a mandate, that at that time, um, many people, including myself, thought that it was a necessary feature to get a stable uh, system if you, were, uh, if you had a, essentially a market system. And then the second thing that's important, I think, is that the mandate that we talked about way back then was a very narrow mandate, and it was based on the principle that if you have the legal right to get healthcare in a society, then you have a corresponding obligation to do what you can to avoid the rest of us, <laughs> you know, who do the right thing and buy insurance and so on, having to pick up the tab for you. So the, the original proposal that we put forward was for a so-called catastrophic mandate. In other words, um, if, if you, um, right now under the law and right, back then, anybody can go to a hospital, or, or most hospitals at least, uh, and under something called EMTALA, uh, have a right for at least emergency care and so on, whether or not they can afford it. So that gives people a right to something. And, and we felt at the time that there ought to be a corresponding obligation for people to at least protect the rest of us from the free rider going into a hospital in that situation, uh, the free rider that could afford. Uh, coverage. So that was the idea behind it. We've learned a lot since then, of course. We've learned, I think, that you can have um, a health system without a mandate, or at least, at least without the kind of mandate that we, we loosely think of as a mandate, a legal requirement. Uh, there may be penalties, which is a slightly different kind of issue, um, like tax penalties and so forth, if you don't buy insurance. Um, but we've learned that, that that you can actually uh, have 
a, a more voluntary system and it could be stable, providing you have things like high risk pools, that you look at uh, incentives, you have a subsidy system, which makes it, uh, you know, reasonable, reasonably uh, affordable for people to buy things. We didn't have any of those things back when we were talking about the original mandate. So I, for one, have learned a lot since then, and, and, and I think others have as well. And therefore, I don't think that we, whilst there are certain advantages of a mandate, there are a lot of disadvantages, both philosophically and practically, and politically, of course, too. You know, the left and the right have both attacked the idea of a mandate. So that's why I, my view have changed uh, over time uh, to where I am today, which is I think we can structure um, a voluntary system um, that can adequately deal with what we want to achieve. There'll be some people who fall through the cracks and we have to deal with that. There'll be, we, I, I strongly feel we need to have a lot of state flexibility to figure out things at the margin and in, and in particular states, because states do differ uh, in their conditions, in the, uh, you know, the population, in their desire to pay for people's care. Right? New York is not the same as Alaska and Mississippi, right? There's big differences in terms of that. So I think we can take that into account. That's kind of what I've been struggling with, if you like, for the last few years, how to design a system that meets all those objectives. Well, and I, I think that's that's an important discussion here because having distinctions and definitions that everyone understands ahead of time is important to understand what happened afterwards, of course. And so, um, and, and one big issue being talked about now, not only by yourself, by, but by others as well, is this idea of Medicare Advantage for All. You know, like the individual mandate, Medicare Advantage for All as a term could mean a lot of things. So could you describe what your conception of, of Medicare Advantage for All would include and how it would operate today? Well, and you said, and you draw the draw a distinction between Medicare for all and Medicare Advantage for all because they are very different. Uh, as I try to uh, kind of write, I mean, I guess my thinking on this went along the following lines: that we all do want to find a way of enabling people, everybody in America, to get access to uh, an adequate level of affordable care. I mean that um, we, I think. That's, that's a feeling that's grown in this country over many years, and that's just why we feel that everybody should have an adequate level of education, uh, at least up to, you know, uh, 12th grade. Um, so I think that's something where that's a starting point, that we have that objective. The second thing is I was interested in some, I'm a conservative in the sense that I must refer to, to go with something that already exists and figure out how to modify it than to start with something completely new that, that's untested and so on. So my inclination is always to kind of go for something and try to adapt it. Uh, and I think that's true of most Americans. I mean, I think Americans are always suspicious of anything radically new. Uh, they generally like Medicare, um, not necessarily for good reasons, but they do. Uh, so it, it's, it's a, you know, it's an element that, that's uh, widely popular. And then um, this distinction between Medicare for all and Medicare Advantage for all is a very important one. Um, Medicare for all, I think, I come from the UK. Medicare for all is the classic kind of government uh, program where the government sets the, the, you know, the fees, the benefits, the payments, everything from, you know, uh, A to Z in the system. And yeah, a lot of people on the left 
really like that. They think that they want to have insurance companies out of the way. They, don't, they want to have private coverage essentially out of the way and so on. So I can understand. Um, but a lot of people, an increasing proportion of people, are in, Med are in Medicare Advantage. It's, an, it's a very popular part of Medicare. And it's a, it's, a, it's a system, as you know, that consists of private plans in competition with each other, where each plan gets a capitated amount to essentially keep their enrollee as healthy as possible. And that amount is adjusted according to people's income um, and in terms of what they pay. And it's adjusted to the plans, broadly speaking, in terms of uh, the, so, you know, the risk of carrying the, the insurance risk of carrying particular people. So it's adjusted essentially for severity, for people's medical condition and so on. So I sort of look at that and think, okay, um, people on the right have generally been arguing for private plans in competition, for having a subsidy system that's related to income and, and medical condition in some way, uh, and uh, not to have the government deciding exactly what all the payment systems and so on. It looks a lot like Medicare Advantage. So although there's a lot of issues in Medicare Advantage, it does have this core feature, which strikes me as achieving what at least many people on the left purport to be aiming for, something that's familiar, that's been tried and tested and so on. And it meets the objective of uh, trying to get um, innovation, choice, and so on in, uh, in plans and not micromanaging the details of a plan, including the payment uh, to physicians and nurses and, and so on. So that's why I say as a chassis, as a basic kind of idea. Now, there's lots of debate about exactly how you should put it together, but it strikes me as being an area, an approach that could get, you know, uh, a reasonable buy-in from people on the sort of center left and the center right. And therefore it's worth really looking at as a way of trying to break out of this very polarized and sort of chaotic system. And I think that helps those of us actually on the center right, because um, if you don't have something viable that's, that's understandable to people, something that they're familiar with, they'll pick something else that they're familiar with, which is what happened you know, in your state just a couple of days ago. Uh, that uh, they'll say, okay, well, if all else fails, let's go with something we know and just expand. Uh, so I think it's really important to kind of think of these uh, sort of, you know, approaches such as I've suggested, if you're going to be successful uh, at, uh, in, in the competition for, um, you know, for an effective healthcare system in this country. Well, and, and one thing I know that, that on the right, there's been a lot of discussion of, you know, especially in the last 10 years, is the problem with the United States relying so heavily on a third-party payer system, you know, whether you're talking about government or whether you're talking about the private market. Medicare Advantage for All seems to double down on that kind of concept. So how would you respond to criticisms that rather than trying to set up a system that moves away from third-party payer systems, that Medicare Advantage for All would make 30 third-party payer systems, the default approach, not just from the left, but from the right as well? Well, I, th I think uh, the challenge of third-party systems is when you've got uh, coverage, uh, which is provided by a third party, where you're paying for that coverage indirectly. Uh, it's, it's a particular challenge at the place of work. It's, much, it's a much bigger issue with employment-based coverage than it is, say, with exchange plans, where people can see the cost 
and they can change each year and so on. So I think it's the, the biggest problem of, of uh, third party payments is this kind of invisible system where you're getting coverage, you don't really see what you're paying. And so you keep asking for more and you keep wanting more coverage because you're not aware that it's coming out of your paycheck gradually over time. And that's been the principal concern with uh, third party uh, payment. In the case of Medicare Advantage, we are talking about a capitated system. In other words, yeah, it's insurance, um, but it is insurance in the form of a payment to a plan where the plan then has incentives to look for the best, most cost-effective way of providing that care and the person buying into a Medicare Advantage plan makes a decision each year as to whether they feel that they're getting good value for money in this. So whilst it's got, it retains some of the um, perverse incentives in any um, third party system, third party payment system, it has the advantages that I've, that I've mentioned of, of people being able to select, being able to see the whole package, the, the, the price as it were is up front. You know, people are getting subsidies to pay for it. They see the marginal cost. And so they have an incentive. So I think it deals with a lot of the issues associated with uh, third party payments. But I don't think third party payments are something you can entirely get rid of. I, I, I've never felt very comfortable with the idea that the only healthcare system we can have is one where I'm trying to make the best deal I can directly as an individual with providers and there's nobody in the middle helping me in some way. I just, I've never been attracted to that idea. Stuart, I have a question that um, as you're talking about innovation and, and healthcare, one thing that I think is really interesting is in this <clears throat> shift to looking at the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you've done a lot of work on community-based healthcare, right? And yes. including education in that and like fixing communities so that everyone is better off. And can you just talk about that a little bit? Like, like what does that mean, social determinants of health and and how do you think that if we take that kind of approach, that could improve um, both the cost and the outcomes of healthcare? Yes, I think this, this whole idea of social determinants is, is the notion that and it's not exactly a revolutionary idea, but there's more to health than, than medicine <laughs> and doctors, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's your own like life. We, we find that when children have access to a dentist, they do better in school. Ex right. Basically, uh, yeah. But we, but we know that... Uh, a lot, there are a lot of factors in, in healthcare in terms of how healthy you are. You are like I said, your lifestyle. Uh, there are things that make people more likely to be vulnerable to ill health, and those can be you know, psychological issues. I mean, stress, particularly for children, you know, in, in high stress situations, we know that that's a lasting issue. We know that if people live in in moldy housing in poor parts, you know, they're more likely to have respiratory problems and that can be very expensive. If they're elderly and they're, un they're in unsafe housing, they're more likely to fall. You're gonna get a lot of, of expensive trips uh, paid for by Medicare to, to the hospital and so on. So we do know that there are a lot of things that affect people's health. And in a sense, all the idea of social determinants is, is saying, let's recognize that. Let's see if we can figure out what the main what factors are what you know what are major factors in people's long-term health and let's look at investing in dealing with some of those upstream as we call it before the person comes down with an expensive illness or an accident that was avoidable 
Um, and let's, let's deal with that, uh, both to um, save money, um, but also to improve the quality of, of, of care and lives and, and people's individual happiness and success. Sure. And we know, and you know, in the education area, if you can deal with uh, often multitude of issues that a child is facing that can be re related to stress, in, in some cases can be other factors, if you can deal with some of those things, that child is going to come to school more likely to learn and to be successful in the long term. So finding ways of dealing with that. You know, school nurses do that to some degree, but we can invest a little bit more in that and I think achieve some savings and improvements in, in the long run. And the reverse is true, that, that uh, if, if we deal with these things, then healthcare costs can go down. Okay. So, so health and these other areas work in tandem. Uh, and, and what we're doing is looking at that. Now, once we start to look at social determinants, then you get a range of issues. I mean, there are certain things where you can pinpoint particular people things that um, make it more likely that they will be expensive people in the healthcare system. Housing is a good example of that. Transportation. Uh, uh, sure, like people taking an ambulance to yeah, the hospital because they have no other way to get there. Yeah, or the transportation. Ways of, of them um, fulfilling their prescriptions, for example. Sure. Uh, I work with a charter school system here um, uh, and, and the clinic, which is a, it's a combination here. Mm -hmm. One of the things that does is allow parents to come in as they drop their kids off, drop off their prescriptions wow. at the school, which is right next to the clinic. And then essentially the clinic prepares the prescription so that when the mother or father comes to pick up the child, the prescription is there. Because that way they're going to get it. They're not probably going exactly. to you know, even walk across the street in some cases because they're, you know, they're driving, they're trying to pick up their kid and so forth. So there are things like that you can do. You can go a little further and say there are fundamental issues in our society that cause some groups to be more vulnerable, you know, to medical problems. We're seeing this with COVID, of course. Sure. People in, under certain conditions are more likely to come down with viruses and other transmittable diseases. You know, once you start getting into that, you can be talking about pretty major, you know, uh, interventions to deal with it. And we we've got to be certain that we know what the results is before we start making those kinds of commitments. But for individuals, a lot of screening can really help a lot. Uh, you know, the um, pediatricians in this country, the, the largest association of pediatricians has given pretty, um, pretty significant um, uh, uh, guidelines to pediatricians about asking sure. um, children and their parents, of course, about, you know, nutrition, other conditions in the home, stress factors and so on, because there's such a relationship between that and yeah. children. Medical. It took us so long to figure out that giving kids uh, breakfast, lunch, some, even after school meals at school without any um, stigma is so fundamental. I'm glad that we've gotten past that. It makes but, a difference um, by the kids are, are going to yeah. function, isn't it? I mean, it's like, like, who, who does so well on an empty stomach? And, and we know that that tends to be a bigger issue with some, with some parts yep. of the population than others. We know, we, of course, now in, with COVID, we're seeing uh, the problem of a lot of kids not having adequate nutrition. Yeah. And you're trying to get them to sit on a, you know, doing a Zoom for five or six hours a day. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Stomach. It's not so work. many, so many so, problems. So, you know, these so I, I would say, though, that we're still at pretty early days in thinking about social determinants in this mm -hmm. country. Other countries are much further ahead. 
we may not always like exactly what they do in these other countries, but at least they've they've committed yeah. to a lot more. And that's why our balance in this country of expenditures on on clinical health care, medical care, and compared with our ex expenses on other services, housing, education services that relate to health and so forth, is, is we're really an outlier. We spend a ton of money in emergency rooms. Yeah. Yeah. We don't spend a lot on making sure people don't go to the emergency, you know, don't have to go to the emergency room. And that's uh, these upstream factors. And that's what I think we're now at last focusing on. It's what I spend most of my time actually working on now. Stuart, you know, the Show Me Institute is obviously a state-based think tank. And so our, what we usually work on is making reforms at the state level. So if you were to, to say, you know, this is the one thing that, you know, the federal government should do, and this is the one thing that states should do, uh, when it comes to reforming healthcare, what should be the one thing the federal government does to improve access or reduce costs? And same for the state. What should states be doing on their own that they can act on independently? I, th I think the federal government really has two functions, um, and kind of only two functions, really. Uh, one is to address some of the larger financial issues. Uh, if we're going to make sure that everybody has an adequate level of healthcare and can afford it, then you're going to have to have the federal government deal with some states that have a much lower uh, general uh, income level for, among households and, and so on. Uh, that's one of the functions. If we're going to give uh, subsidies to people to buy into healthcare and so forth, the federal government can do, I think, the most effective job in terms of designing those kinds of, of subsidies. I think the federal government also, quite frankly, needs to set a broad objectives in a health system. Because I do think that those are national in the sense of, do we think everybody or up to a certain level of, of income ought to be assured financially that they can get adequate care? I think that's a decision that we have to make at the national level. I think that's part of being an American, being, living in America. Then I think when it comes to the states, I think the states, and I've always felt this, um, you know, I studied American history when I was in the UK and I was just drawn to the whole idea of federalism. Uh, the states really are the major engine of social policy or should be in this country. And therefore we should allow the states very wide flexibility to determine ways of, of um, meeting that national objective, utilizing finance from the federal government, but having wide discretion to do it. Now, I don't think it means a blank check. I think it means that the states should be held to account by themselves uh, and to others uh, in terms of how effective are their approaches. There should be a continuous evaluation of states by other states and for other states, as well as for the federal government. So we can learn from each other constantly. But I think, I think the federal the states are, should be the drivers of healthcare in this country. That's why I strongly support the idea of waivers uh, to states, even within existing programs. I think that is a good way to allow the kind of innovation that you need to build a track record to change federal policies and federal programs. Uh, so I think that's, in, that's really important in how we think about the states. One, uh, one proposal is floating out there now. I think uh, Chris Pope at 
the Manhattan Institute has been talking about uh, an idea that I think that's been brought up before, but of just fully federalizing our Medicaid program, saying that Medicaid should just be completely operated and funded by the federal government and taken basically for the most part away from state budgets and, and direct state management. What's your reaction to that proposal? I, I wouldn't go that far myself at all. Um, I think that um, when I think of Medicaid, I would prefer to see a Medicaid system that is a lot smaller, if you like, than it is today. I think of Medicaid as a, a very particular approach to, to healthcare that recognizes that people below a certain income and in certain circumstances really need a lot more. This is where social determinants really come in in a way. Need a lot more than simply health coverage. There are a lot of things going on in their lives and we've got to look at social services, housing, healthcare together. I think that states need to take the lead, especially in that area, in terms of coordinating the various services at the state and local level. So I would like, to, I, I really do think that Medicaid in some form ought to exist as a, as a, a federal state program with the states having you know, skin in the game and, and connected to other things that they're doing. I think that's necessary. I think for others that, um, including actually the expansion population, most people in the expansion population, I would not have in Medicaid. For them, it's, it's more an issue of they just don't quite have enough income to, to get adequate coverage. There's not so much of these other things going on in their lives that require a whole kind of matrix of, uh, of services. So I would have them in whatever the you know, federally funded and, and federally individual system that uh, we would have for everybody else. So, so I, I, don't, I don't agree with federalizing uh, Medicaid. We're, we're kind of doing that to some extent already, of course, in the expansion population because of the proportion that's picked up by the federal government. But I don't think that's the right way forward. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. This is fascinating. 2020, that's one for the history books, right? It certainly is. There's a lot, a lot of disruption going on and what? Plenty to good can come out of that as well as yeah. really bad stuff, which is what we've also seen. Lots to research for lots of years too. So, well, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. I, I always enjoy what you write about and uh, I like hearing your perspective. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.